We are continuing our sermon series on Romans. So I invite you to turn in your Bible, if you have one, to Romans chapter 2. And we're going to be reading from 12 to 29. We're in the section of Romans where Paul is describing why we need such a thing as the gospel. Why do we need good news of God sending a Savior into the world? Well, chapter in chapter 1, all of chapter 2, part of 3 is, is why. So let's jump right into the text and uh, read it and see what the Lord has to teach us this morning. Starting verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man but from God. Let's pray. There's so much packed into your word, so much depth and richness there, Lord, but there's also this distance between us and that time that we need to cover. We want to understand what you were saying to the church then so that we can hear it fresh today in our context. And we ask for the Holy Spirit to do that, Lord, that he... We'll open our eyes this morning and our hearts. Would you give us a glimpse of, again, why you came, why you had to send Jesus for us? 
And there's some dark, hard things to, to manage and navigate here this morning, but there's also that pointing to something greater, pointing to the salvation that's over all of it. And so, Lord, fill our hearts even with joy, even as we hear other things this morning that are difficult. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You need to know that there's a certain kind of person that Paul speaks to in Romans chapter 2. Uh, it's the religious person who feels pretty good about his or her piety, who likes to think of himself as doing what God requires, who's confident that he won't enter into judgment with God like other people who are clearly in the wrong. In verse 2, which Dan preached from last week, Paul says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? And then in verse 21, While you preach against stealing, do you steal? So he's, he's addressing a person who's, who, who knows about chapter 1, who, who knows about the description of the world there, those who are doing all manner of ungodliness and unrighteousness and thinking, I'm glad I'm not that because I've got the law. I'm preaching against that kind of stuff. His comments are directed specifically to people of a Jewish background because he speaks about circumcision, as we heard. He speaks about being a Jew. But this isn't only about Jews. Paul wrote this to the church in Rome. He wrote it for anybody who puts their trust in their own goodness as their ticket to heaven and to God's favor. He wants them to rethink that confidence and place it somewhere else, which is in God's mercy through Jesus Christ. So that's the goal of Romans 2. We've got to navigate through the swamp again before we can see the beautiful vista. <laughs> but... God wants us to do that so that we can again appreciate his goodness, his grace, and the true way of salvation. Maybe you're this morning, maybe here this morning, and you might struggle with a recurring sense that I'm better than other people. Um, God would save me, yes, because I believe in Jesus, but also because I'm doing it right. Maybe that's in your heart a little bit. Maybe that's where you go to when your conscience starts to convict you of sin and, and you run to, but I've got this, I've done this, I've done that. I think the Lord wants to speak to you this morning. If you don't feel that way this morning, it could be you tomorrow morning <laughs> because the tendency of man is to trust in ourselves and not in God. And Paul wants to change that. He wants our lives to be grounded on the rock who's Christ. To get there, we've got to remember what the problem is so that we see Jesus as the only answer. Let's start with an observation from verses 12 and following, which is that our problem is sin. That's our root problem. Verse 12 says, All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Surprisingly, this is the first use of that word sin in the book of Romans. You know, we've talked about it as we've preached, but Paul never actually used that word 
until right now. We've used, he's used other words like unrighteousness and ungodliness and so forth. But now he uses the word sin because at the end of the day, that's the real root problem. Is sin in our heart, sin in our life. Sin is any deviation from the moral and revealed will of God. It's God saying, this is the right way to go. And we say, no, I'll go this way. That's what sin is. And that's a problem because God is a judge who will hold people accountable for that rebellious choice, whether you're a religious person or not, whether you have a Bible or not. There's two kinds of people that he mentions here. First, there's people who are without the law, he says, which means they don't have the law of God as written in the Scriptures. They aren't churchgoers. They've never read a Bible, maybe never even heard that there is a Bible. They aren't familiar with what God wrote about how we should live. And Paul says about such people that if you sin, you will perish. That, that is, perish in the wrath and fury of God mentioned back in verse 8. But then he says something about a second group of people, which is those who are under the law. These are people like those of the Jewish background who have an Old Testament they know what God says and how we should live. And Paul says about them that if you sin, you will be judged. That is, you'll be judged in the righteous judgment of God mentioned back in verse 5 for your failures to keep his law, which is another way of saying you will perish. That's a heavy-duty warning to start out this passage of Scripture. With. If that was the only thing we had in the Bible to look at, we would all have to despair right now. You can either perish without the law or you can perish under the law. But either way, God is a judge. As verse 16 says, there's a day coming when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. There is a reckoning for our lives whether you had a Bible or not, there's sin to be reckoned with. Now, a good question to ask here might be this. How can someone without the law, without God's explanation of how we should live, how can he be guilty of sin? After all, he didn't know what was expected of him, right? So how can he be guilty of breaking a law that he didn't know existed? Two things on that. First of all, you're still going to get a ticket if you're speeding on a road and you don't know the speed limit, right? We know that. You, because you did, in fact, break the law. The policeman won't take I didn't know for an answer. <laughs> the law is the law. It's, it's objective. It is what it is. And so it is with God's law. Just because you, doesn't, yet you don't know it doesn't mean you haven't done wrong. But more importantly is the second thing, which is that we actually do know God's law, even without a Bible. We actually know we're speeding, even though there's no speed limit sign. Because Paul says the law is written on our hearts. That's what he explains in verses 14 and 15. 
He says of the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the ones without a Bible, that when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. In other words, you and I have a God-given conscience. And that conscience is a voice that God put in our heads to talk to us when we deviate from his will. We know certain things are right, and we know that certain things are wrong instinctively. Unless your conscience is completely hardened by a long process of suppressing the truth, as we read about in chapter 1, your conscience will either accuse you or excuse you. It says, you shouldn't have done that, or said that, or thought that. Or it says, you said or did or thought the right thing. A functioning conscience will do that. So nobody can really say to God, I didn't know what you wanted from me. I didn't know what the speed limit was. We do know. The work of the law is written on our hearts. That's really just a restatement of chapter 1, which said in verses 19 and 20 that what can be known about God is plain to them in the things that have been made. Verse 21, they knew God. Verse 32, they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things, as listed in chapter 1, deserve to die. Even non-religious people without the law, without the knowledge of the Bible, know that there's a God and that we're accountable to him. Paul's just coming back to that here. You can sin without the law because the work of the law is written on our hearts and our conscience tells us that. There's actually something encouraging here for the church. It means that despite appearances, despite what looks like people being completely without any interest in God or Christianity, doing great, they know that they have sin in their lives that needs to be addressed. Their conscience has told on them many times. Deep down inside, we all know we need good news. We know we need a remedy for our sin. So that means that there's an opening for the gospel. There's an opening to hear about a solution to my sin problem. They might say, I'm not interested. They might be suppressing the truth. You never know what somebody's response is going to be. But they can't deny that there's some truth in what you're saying. (laughs) When Jesus went around, he said, repent and believe in the gospel. The repent is the sin part. We we do get to that (laughs) in the gospel with people. We have to say bad news. And there is a connection. People know it. People know, yeah, there is that problem in my heart. My conscience tells me that so. So we have, we have an inroad. There's an opening for people to hear about a sin bearer. <laughs> to hear about the lamb who was slain for us to make atonement. 
to make satisfaction for our sins. You don't have to do that work. God has already done it ahead of time. God's given everyone a conscience. And yes, in some it's almost completely gone. Um, people, are, people are capable of some horrific things. People can do massively evil things if they suppress the truth, if, they're hardened, if they harden their hearts. You can get so hardened that you can't, it, sin doesn't convict you anymore. In fact, you invite other people into it. That can happen. But most people have a conscience. When they hear about sin, they won't say, what are you talking about? What is that? I have no clue what you're saying. They know. They know that it's there. Like my cousin, who I visited some years ago on her deathbed, she never indicated anything externally except that life was good. <laughs> she was always positive. Everybody loved her. She was just a delightful person to be around. But then she got cancer, and so she was getting into her last days, so I visited her at her home. And I, uh, I sat on her bed, and I asked her, Have you ever sinned? And she said, oh, yes. Oh, yes, I have. And then I was able to talk to her about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And she listened intently. She was hanging on every word because that hadn't been dealt with in her life yet. You never know what's going on under the hood. So, so to speak, in somebody's life. Don't let Satan tell you that nobody thinks they need a Savior if their conscience is functioning. They do know. Sin is everybody's problem, even those without the law. Everybody has something to do with that. So nobody can live with unresolved guilt. Your conscience will accuse you, and so you have to do something about it. This is where there's two main approaches to dealing with the problem of sin. Two man-made gospels, we might say. Here's what they are, the two man-made solutions to the problem of sin. First one is the non-religious gospel of chapter 1, which is to suppress the truth, or to say it another way, to exchange the truth about God for a lie, or to not see fit to acknowledge God. One way to silence the guilty conscience is to say, there is no God there is no standard, therefore I'm not guilty. That's one way to do it. And that's how your conscience gets hardened. You tell yourself that long enough and your heart will be hard. And the judgment of chapter 1 was that God will let you do it to yourself. He will let you go. But you will answer to him all the same. There is a speed limit, so to speak, even if you don't obey it. God will judge. There's another man-made gospel, though, another way to silence the conscience. We can call this one the religious gospel, which is to tell ourselves there is a God, but I meet his standard. Therefore, I'm not guilty. I have obeyed the speed limit, so to speak. So I'm all good. That's the one that Paul speaks to in the rest of the chapter, because he's already dealt with the first one in chapter 1. 
the non-religious gospel just deny that there is a standard. But now he's going he's gonna to speak specifically to the people who have a different kind of gospel, the one that looks better, the one that feels good <laughs> to religious people but is no gospel. That's the one he's going to speak to for the rest of our time here. So let's, let's see what he has to say. What he wants to do is undermine this false gospel, this religious gospel with the real one. Let's see what he has to say about the religious solution to the problem of sin. Listen to his description of a person who sees himself or herself as meeting God's standard, beginning in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Let's stop there. Think about the description of this person. Think about their self-perception. It's pretty exalted, isn't it? I mean, if all these things are true, this is some champion of righteousness right here. This is someone who's the real deal. This is the paragon of virtue. This is the shining example of what it looks like to obey God's speed limit in all things. Blameless. The, the glowing phrases just pile up here one after another. Let's think about them. He first says, you call yourself a Jew. So you identify yourself as a descendant of Abraham, meaning you're in the nation to whom the promises of God are given. You're in God's chosen people. You're the privileged. You're the favored one. He says, you rely on the law. That means you rely on God's word to tell you how you should live. You don't dismiss it. You think it's important, and you think that you're doing it. More than that, you boast in God, and you know his will. So you would say, you are God-centered. <laughs> you're no casual religious person. No, you take God seriously, and you've studied his book and you even know what he wants. You even approve what is excellent. You have been instructed from the law. So you read the Bible and you say, yes, that's how it should be. The Ten Commandments are right. A person should totally do that. He shouldn't commit adultery, shouldn't steal, shouldn't covet your neighbor's things, should obey your parents and all that. Totally, I'm 100% in agreement. How shameful that people don't do that. Seems to be a really solid guy, right? But Paul doesn't stop there. He paints a picture of somebody who's not just a law-keeping religious person, not only skilled in the ways of God, but one who teaches others as well. You are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children. This is a person that people look to for guidance 
in the ways of God. This is a spiritual expert in the words of God, an interpreter of the law, which is the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And this wise, godly person is dispensing all of this wisdom and pearls of knowledge, even to children, you know. That's, that's what we've got here. That's the picture. Think about that portrait. These are solid credentials. This is a person who perceives himself to be not guilty. No judgment for me. I meet the standard. I might even exceed it. <laughs> this is the kind of person who looks at other people, who looks at chapter one kind of people, doing all manner of unrighteousness, and says... Like the man in the parable, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. What does Paul say to a person like that? Here's the shocker in verse 24. He applies Isaiah 52, 5 to them. He says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. <laughs> For all of your piety... For all of your self-identification as this godly, God-centered, obedient person, you are, are responsible for the Gentiles blaspheming God. <laughs> You're responsible for why they're doing it, why they speak irreverently about God and take his name in vain. They blaspheme the name of God because of you. That's shocking. Not what you might expect. What does Paul mean? What's the connection? Basically this, his argument is, you really aren't the person that you think you are. <laughs> and other people can see it. He asks a series of questions in verses 21 and 22, for which the assumed answer is yes. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? Answer, Yes, you do. You who say that one who must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Yes, you do. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Yes. You who boast in the law of God, dishonor God by breaking the law. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles, among the non-believers, because of you. Paul's argument from the perspective of the non-religious person is that you claim to be a spokesman and an example of godliness, but you're really no different from anybody else. If you're a shining example of what it looks like to be a godly person, then your God must not be very great. He doesn't have any answers for me, so I'll just keep going my way. That's the blasphemy, and you help them do it. Now, we might ask, how can Paul make bold claims like that about people that he's never met? Because he, he, remember, he, didn't, he hadn't been to Rome yet. He didn't know these people personally. He wasn't thinking about stuff that he saw. How can he say, you dishonor God by breaking the law? How does he know that? It goes back to what he knows about human nature. There is no perfect person. <laughs> Ecclesiastes said it. In Ecclesiastes 7.20, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. There is no such person except Jesus, who isn't just man. 
his comeback for the person who sees himself or herself as the shining example of meeting God's standards is that you don't meet it at all, really. You just can't see how high the bar really is. It's like what Jesus said about adultery in Matthew, 20, Matthew 5, 27 to 28. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. True, right? That's good, absolutely. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, you think the bar is just that you don't actually jump into bed with someone you're not married to, but the bar is actually that you don't even fantasize about doing it. Is idolatry really just about having a carved image that you put on a mantle and you bow down to? No. It's any God replacement in your deepest affections. It's anything that you feel is necessary to make you significant, that gives you something to live for, that you'll build your life around. What Paul's doing here is making the case that the religious gospel is no gospel. There is no confidence in the flesh. There is no way that anybody meets God's standard. If you try to silence your conscience by relying on the law, you will be no better off than the person who suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. Both are man-made gospels that fail completely to deal with the root issue of sin. We need a better way. Now let's bring this into our lives, because that's ultimately God's purpose here. This isn't just about Jewish people in the first century. This is about us today, because it was written to the church God wants us to see ourselves in this picture. So to try to do that, let me rephrase verses 17 to 20 in a Christian church context. It might sound something like this. But if you call yourself a Christian and rely on doing what is right, if you boast in God and consider yourself to be God-centered, if you agree that the Bible is good and you approve of it, If you are well-versed in the Scriptures and feel very confident that you know God's Word and can teach it to others, if you are even a Sunday school teacher, should you believe that you are righteous before God because of these things? Paul's answer is no. You set the bar too low. You don't think you steal? Have you ever stolen time from your employer by scrolling Facebook during work hours? Have you ever stolen credit for something that wasn't completely your work? Have you ever failed to report something on your income taxes? There are a lot of ways we can steal. You don't think you've committed adultery. Well, you can't say that unless you have a transcript of all of your thoughts since you were a child and there's no instance there of having lusted after someone who's not your spouse. Does idolatry in other people bother you? Have you ever envied or greatly desired somebody else's good looks? Or their good fortune? Or their good health? Colossians says covetousness is idolatry. Questions could go on. Paul's point here is there's no hope in the self-approval of thinking that we meet God's standards because we don't. We need a different gospel. The religious gospel doesn't work. And not only does it not work for us, but it actually hinders people from believing the real gospel. 
Paul says of the self-confident, self-righteous person, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. It's sobering to think that one of the things that will surely lead non-believers to speak irreverently about God is when professing Christians act as if their righteous living is what saves them. Proud Christians actually keep other people from becoming Christians. That's sobering. But here's the other side of it. The reason the Lord points this out to us is to make us humble Christians (laughs) who know that we have sin in our life, but we also know forgiveness of sin. That's the kind of person that a non-believer can relate to. You're imperfect like me, and yet you found peace with God. How did you do that? (laughs) It opens the door to witness. It doesn't lead to blasphemy because your life speaks about a God who is both holy and merciful. Yes, we sin either under the law or without the law. Yes, there's a God who judges the secrets of men. Yes, there's a reckoning, but that same God has made a way to justify me, to count me righteous. It's in the gospel which reveals the righteousness of God, the righteousness that he gives to me through faith in Jesus Christ, who, despite who I am, makes me clean. I have found this God and this way. (laughs) And so here's what it is. And we we share that with somebody else. That doesn't lead to blaspheming God. People may still blaspheme God, but not because of you. (laughs) Because you're not telling them a wrong gospel with your life. Make no mistake, nowhere in this passage does Paul say that doing things, doing right things doesn't matter. He just says it doesn't save. Two man-made gospels don't work. It doesn't work to say there is no standard. It won't work to say that you meet the standard. Both are false. Man's gospel doesn't work. So what is God's gospel? That's what we turned to last. It's in here, though it takes a little digging towards the end. (laughs) Let's finish with God's solution to the problem of sin find it in the theme of the last paragraph. It starts in verse 25. Paul picks up something that would have been really, really important to Jews in that day and probably in our day as well, which was the sign of circumcision. He says, circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Circumcision is the cutting off of the foreskin of the male shortly after birth. It's this physical sign, for a male at least, that he's of the nation of Israel, that he's of the people of God, that he's in the covenant community with God and the recipient of all of his blessing. So for a Jew, circumcision was a matter of religious identity as a person in God's favor. And Paul says, in essence, the only way that symbol is of any value is if you obey the law. The only way... Uh, you, have to, you have to keep the whole thing. You have to be 100% committed to all of it. If, if your circumcision is part of a comprehensive, unbroken commitment to God, then it's of value. But if it's not part of that, it's of no value to you. It might as well be uncircumcision. You might, have, might as well have never had it happen. 
A rough equivalent in our day might be a person who calls himself a Christian because he was baptized once. I went through the ceremony. Uh, We had a public affirmation. Everybody clapped for me. I felt good. Uh, So I'm a Christian now. But there's no value in that either. Not if it's not part of a comprehensive, I obey everything in the law, which nobody does. It won't help you. That act won't help you in the judgment. So what's the hope? Where can we silence the guilty conscience with something that really does deal with our sin? Well, we find it not in anything that we can do externally, but in something that God does internally. Let me read verses 28 to 29. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is directed at Jews, but the principle applies to Christians. Paul's saying it was never God's intent that the outward symbol of circumcision or even of baptism would make anybody a member of the people of God. Any, it just doesn't do that. The outward sign is only supposed to reflect something that's going on inside, namely the circumcision of the heart, the, the cutting away of something there at the deepest core of who you are. It's about transformation. It's about the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Paul uses language going back to Jeremiah 4, verse 4, where God said to the people who were already physically circumcised, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. The true circumcision, the true sign that a person's part of the favored people of God, the genuinely saved individual, is this heart change. This transformation that the Spirit of God carries out, the circumcision, is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, he says. That takes us back to Ezekiel 36, where God said of the coming days, of our days, that I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's the circumcision. I will put my spirit within you, he says, and cause you to walk in my statutes and careful to obey my rules. That's the circumcision. The spirit of God transforming our hearts, our inner desires, our inner desire for God. No more of the rebellion, now a, a yielding, now a yearning, now a longing for him. You no longer try to suppress the truth about God and say there's no standards. And you no longer look to the standards to save you. You look to God to save you. You look to the Holy Spirit to take up residence within. And when he does that, he will point you to Jesus because Jesus said of the Spirit, he will glorify me. (laughs) The Spirit opens our eyes to the beauty of God coming to earth in, the, in his son and living a perfect life and then dying a death that, that bears sin and then rising again. It is finished. That is taken care of. God is satisfied. <laughs> the Spirit opens our eyes to see all that. He reveals what we were blind to before. 
And then the righteousness of God becomes ours, according to chapter 1. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. We can't make ourselves righteous. But God has made a way to count us righteous anyway. And that is a basis on which we're saved. That deals with the root problem. And if you're a person who's saved like that, then even as Ezekiel said, you will walk in God's statutes. You will be careful to obey his rules. Not because you have to, but because you want to. That'll be the outward change from the inner circumcision. Let me just close with the application. What do you do when your conscience tells on you? When your conscience reminds you, you crossed the line, you did something you shouldn't have done, you thought something you shouldn't have thought, you said something you shouldn't have said. If you're a church-going person who knows God's word, your instinctive reaction, maybe, I'm going to try to do that better. Uh, I'm going to work harder at that. (laughs) I'm going to stop that. I'm going to rely on the law is what you're saying. But there's no relief to be had there. (laughs) God shows us a different way. It's to go to the cross. It's to remember the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's to remember the one who died and who sinned for those without the law and for those who sinned under the law. And you let the blood of Christ plead God's mercy for you and intercede for you. And that's all you need. The righteous life and death of Christ is your forgiveness. It is your acceptance before God. And remember the promise at the end of the passage. If you've had this heart circumcision, if the Spirit has come and changed you, and you're His now, He says at the end, his praise is not from man, but from God. Can you imagine that? God will praise you. We're talking God. We're talking holy. We're talking perfect. We're talking almighty, omnipotent, omniscient. He says he will praise you. He will commend you. He will rejoice over you with singing, like Zephaniah says. Can you believe that that God would do that? Oh, sinful us. People who could say yes to all those questions. You say, you know, you do this? Yes, 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 I've done all that. That's the person, because of Christ, that God will praise. Because you're in him, because you're in Christ, because he has counted you righteous. So he actually responds to you like you are, righteous. That's good news. That's better than just kind of sliding through under the radar and getting in kind of at the last moment. It's God opening the doors wide and saying, come in, beloved, because you're in Christ. You belong to Christ. That's a real good news gospel, that it all depends on him. Let's pray. It will take us all our life, Lord, to to enter into that to grow in it. We pray that you will do that as we go through this rest of Romans, that you'll open our eyes to all the dimensions of freedom that are there, all the, all the blessings that are poured out to us through Christ. Give us that help today.
There is a lot to struggle with. There is judgment. There is wrath. But thank you that you, you spare us from it in Christ. And more than spare us from it, but you even praise us for the things that you did in us. I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.